We're going to be talking about worship. And I know a lot of times the connotations that come with that word is what we just got done not that long ago. It's not only about singing. It's only about how loud can we sing. We worship today because we sung really well. Or the other connotation that we normally have is going to a place of worship. So we say that there's a location where we're allowed to worship God at, location where we go to worship God. And every single thing else for us in our life is our life. That's what we do, but when we come on Sunday, it's worship. And so today, as we look into John 4 and see what does Jesus say worship is and what true worship is, and we're going to look at what does worship unto God look like? Because there's many different things we can talk about with worship, the body postures, and doing the acts of service, and even it talks about sometimes the Bible when people go to worship men. But we're not going to focus on, we're going to focus on what does it mean to worship God? And to start off, let's define what does worship mean? Because it's a very dynamic word that has a lot of different meanings to it. And one of the ones that I thought was really helpful was by a pastor, a former pastor, retired now, by a gentleman named Timothy Keller. And he defines worship as this, and he says, Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. So I'll say it one more time. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages your entire being. And so like I said, we're going to focus on what does that mean to ascribe ultimate value to God? What does it look like for us to worship God with our entire being? And a way that I define with going through our, t- our entire being is Triple H. Sorry for you, you know what, 90s wrestling, I don't mean him, but I mean in the sense of this, of the head, the heart, and the hands. Of each aspect of our being, being engaged in worship, is our mind engaged when we worship God? Is our affections and our heart actually believing what we're worshiping and we're believing what we're saying? And our hands, the actions that we do, are those in line with worship unto God? And so today we're going to look at what does that mean and how John 4 helps us to answer those that question. And there's four questions in particular, and they're all in your bulletin, that we're going to go through and we're going to answer about worship today. The first one is, why do we worship God? The second one is, where do we worship God? The third one is, how do we worship God? And the last one is, who is the God that we worship? So with that today, let's jump into our passage. We're going to be in John 4, 16 through 26. And if you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 889. John 4, starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. 
And those who worship him must worship him, worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let us pray. Father, we come before you in need. We come before you in need of the affections that are right for worship, Lord. Because many times, Lord, our minds can know the right thing to say and our hands can do the right thing, Lord. But many times our hearts are far from you. And so, Father, I ask today that your spirit does the work inside of us. That you do the work of changing our hearts that we may worship you. I pray that this sermon may be an act of worship unto you. I pray that it may be sweet unto you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray as we talk about this topic of worship, Lord, I pray that we may see how do you call us to worship you? How do you call us to be engaged, Lord, with this? Thank you for how gracious you've been to us. Thank you for how merciful you've been to us. And just thank you so much that you have called us into this union with you, Lord, that you have reconciled us from this world. And we thank you and we praise you and we worship you for that, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be picking up in this conversation that Jesus is having with a lot of times she's named as the woman of the well with the Samaritan woman. And last week Tim pointed out a couple of things when he was talking about it. Some of the things that I want us to know about as we get into the text today. So the first one is just remembering that the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. And that's important for this conversation because she even asked Jesus, why are you sitting down having water with me? You're not supposed to interact with me. So this was socially unacceptable for them to be interacting. And the second thing is looking at how she responds to when Jesus points her to eternal things. As he points her to eternal things, she goes back to her temporal needs. As he says, I have living water. She says, will you give me this water so that I won't thirst again physically? And so as we look at her and we see what can we learn of her and how does she even show some of our own tendencies in our lives? So let's first jump into verses 16 through 18. So he says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you know, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the very first thing that we see is Jesus has a deeper knowledge of her than she revealed to him. And as we know, John is writing this gospel to know that this is the son of God. And this is an aspect of Jesus' divinity, of his knowledge of the human heart. Because we can't do that. We don't have that ability to see into the mind of others and see into the heart and to know what is going on. And Jesus knows her very deeds and what she's been up to. And I can imagine as he is calling her out for her sin, how much that must have hurt her. Of How does this man know about this? How does this man know what is going on internally in me? How does he know what I've been doing in my own time? How does he know what I've been using my body for? And we see that reality with our own that the Lord knows what we're doing. The Lord knows our hearts. There is nothing that is secret to him. There's nothing that we can hide from him. So when he calls us unto worship, he calls us to act as he told her to do. We respond with knowing that he already knows. 
And he's just inviting us to be honest with him. He's inviting us to be real with what's actually going on in our lives as she probably was hiding these things. And what's interesting is she first responds honestly. She says, he's right. Because she knew in her sense she couldn't lie about it. There was a perception of him that she knew he knew something about her that she probably wasn't sharing with everybody. And she responded honestly. And that's the thing that we have to do. When we come to God, the only way we can is an understanding of our own state and our where we are and that we are sinful. There's an understanding that, God, I'm sinful and you are holy. And before we acknowledge that, we won't come unto him. As Jesus said, often he has come to seek the sick. He has come to seek the lost, not those who think they are well and have no need of him. And the sad thing is, the reality is we're all sick and we're all lost, but only some of us will acknowledge it. Only some of us will say to the Lord, yes, I am broken. Yes, I am in need. And so we see at the very beginning of this that Jesus shows her her sinfulness and enables her, that then enables her to be able to come to worship unto him. And the second thing about her response that I want to talk about was, I'll talk about it a little bit, but it also... I have a story that uh, it reminded me of. So Jesus points out to her, and then in verse 19, he, she jumps and switches the conversation. She talks about him being a prophet. And this is a tendency in our own selves, and I, a story I thought of was, I was working, it was probably about a couple weeks back, and I was training a guy. And we're working in the store, and he's, uh, he's with me, and this lady walks by. And he says, did you see that? And I understood what he was talking about, but I told him, I was all right, I'm not trying to look at them. I'm trying to keep my eyes pure. And when I said that to him, he went away for a minute. He came back to me. He's like, are you a Christian? And that was his response. And I told him, I was like, I was like yes, I'm actually a pastor. And so me and him started to talking. And he was just telling me about how he's like, I don't really do the God thing. Like, I, I fell away. You don't know what I've seen. I've seen all kinds of things in war and all this kind of stuff like that. And how can you serve this God? And I said to him, I said, all right, I understand all that. And I understand your pain. And I understand what you are talking about. And the reality that I had to come to as of before I became a believer was I can say all these other things are wrong. All these other problems are happening. But I had to acknowledge my own sin before God, because when I die and when I stand before the Lord, I can't stand upon. Well, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? There's all this problems, all this evil. But I asked him, what about the evil in your own heart? And immediately he changed it to, well, what about this? And that's a tendency that a lot of us normally have is whenever somebody comes to us and says, hey, I see you've been living this kind of type of way. Or, hey, brother, I see that you've been doing this. Or, hey, sister, why do you talk in this particular way? We have this tendency to say, no, I don't want to talk about my sin. Let's talk about something else. Let's change the subject. And we see this as her response to Jesus in verse 19, as she says, after Jesus tells her about her sin, she says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And there is that danger in trying to change a topic. So my encouragement to you is as people come to you, which is a beautiful thing to have brothers and sisters in Christ talk to you about things that are going on in your life. Be able to stop and say, OK, Lord, what are you showing me in my own heart? Instead of trying to change the topic, which sin will lead us to do is to hide our sin. To shelter ourselves and to isolate ourselves away from that confrontation. And so I encourage you, as we see right here, not to go in this way, and we'll see a little bit more of how she responds after, but just initially her first response of trying to hide her sin. And so we answer the first question that I asked of, why do we worship God? 
And we worship Jesus because he has enabled to enabled us to. We worship him because he has come to us. He has shown us our sins so that we are able to. And that's why we are able to worship God. So our first question, why? So let's pick up now in verse 20. So in verse 20, it reads, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. So just a little background of who the Samaritans were. And I said that was significant and important. And basically what they were is a, a people group from the Jews, a remnant of the northern Jewish kingdom who had intermarried with foreigners after the resettling. So when they came back and some of the tendencies of them, they because of marrying with foreigners and people who worship other gods, they also worship inner gods, other gods. And so tried to mingle that in with the worship of God, where they would say Mount I'll probably pronounce this wrong, but Gerizim, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but Mount Gerizim is where they believe was the holy place. As she says right here on this mountain, we believe this is where you're supposed to worship God, even though they were intermingling and mixing the worship of God. But the Jews say that at the temple is where you are to worship God. And so this was a constant battle and a constant fighting between these two people groups of Samaritans and the Jews of, that lived in Jerusalem. Even to the point of this, of this is a quote from a Jew in the late second century, just to get you an understanding. I know it's past that time, but an understanding of how much they hated each other. So it says like this, and it's a quote from a Jew in the late second century. There be two manner of nations which my heart abhors, and the third is no nation. They that sit upon the mountain of Samaria, and they that dwell among the Philistines. And that foolish people that dwell in Sichem. And his perception of the Jews, which was a common understanding, that these are people we should abhor. These are people we should have nothing to deal with. These are forsaken people that we should not be around. But on the other end, the Samaritans felt very similar towards the Jews. They believed that they were doing false worship because the true place of worship was in Mount Gerizim. And I want us to turn really quickly to John 8, 48 to see how what of a Samaritan is called where Jesus is talking to some Jews and he's confronting them about who their true father is. And their response to him in John 8, 48 just gives another emphasis of how they viewed Samaritans. So in John 8, 48, after Jesus has told them that their father is the devil, they respond to him with this. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? So they're comparing Jesus to being a Samaritan and with him having a demon that he is demonic. And so this is a major tension between the two of them that they're not just, oh, we dislike each other. We dislike how you guys go about worship, but we hate you and we hate what you stand for. And so we see this tension between the two of them. And she asked this question, where is the right place to worship? And I love Jesus' response there. He doesn't get caught in all the disputes between them. He doesn't get caught in everything that she's talking about. But he says to her in verse 21, back in John 4. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. So the first phrase to look at is where he says the hour is here and is coming. And so as we look at that and think about what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says the hour is here? 
And this is a common refrain that Jesus will use. He'll talk about the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is coming. So there's this here and not yet aspect that he is speaking to her. So in reality, the hour has come where she is standing with God. And worship is being reformed and she is being taught this at that very moment and is here for her. But it is also coming when the spirit will come. And then in the final, in the consummation of all things, there is an hour that is coming when we will be able to worship God face to face, unhindered. And there will be nothing hindering us, which we're going to talk about at the very end. I want you to keep that in mind. What is that hour to come at the very end? And so another aspect that we see that Jesus points out is he removes worship to be bound by location. And so in a very real sense, I know me and Tim talked about this, but church, you don't have to come to church to worship God. You don't have to be in this very building to worship God. But we do come here so we may worship God collectively as a body. That we come to hear from others that we may better worship God. And so in a very real sense, we do not have to be in a, this physical location to worship God. But we do so that we may do it as a, as a body. So that reality is removed from the minds of these people and also for ourselves also when we think and we segment worship to church. We segment worship unto Sunday. We segment worship away from our weekly, our weekly day, our days of the week. And so as we live our lives and we contemplate, we work and we go and we go to school and all the different areas of our life and places that we are, we worship God there. We say that he is worthy. We say that he is above all things. And we do that with our entire being, and that is worship unto him, even in your job, even in your home, and wherever you may go, that is where we can worship God. And so the second question is answered by this verse, of where do we worship? And the worship of God is no longer dependent upon physical location, so we can worship God everywhere. So let us continue on, verse 22. So Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So another aspect of the Samaritans that I didn't cover before was that they also had limited their Bible. So they basically took the first five books of the Bible and said, this is it. So everything we read in the prophets, the Psalms and everything else in between that in the New Testament, they have said those are not God's writings. And so their view and understanding of God was very limited. They did not understand all the prophecies that were to come about the Messiah. And so Jesus telling her, you're worshiping what you do not actually understand. You do not know. Your worship is limited. And there's danger in that. There's danger in that. And even in our present time and day, and one of the things we were talking about last week, we were going through Romans 9. And for many, Romans 9 is a very difficult passage because of just the realities that are set before us. And one of the things the Lord is helping me to see and to think about the majority of times when we choose to worship God in a particular way, we say we don't really like that about God. It's not mainly intellectual. It's not because there's something that we're not understanding. A lot of times it's mainly because our heart says, no, God, I don't want that. I don't like that aspect of you. I don't like that you have wrath. I don't like that you're going to judge. I don't like that you're going to choose because I think you should choose everyone. Or I think you should not just judge and so we segment God into, this is the God that I like, and these are the aspects I like about him, and these are the aspects that I'll share with people. I'll tell them how loving God is, how inviting he is, and yes, he is. 
But we must speak of our God in, in his entirety. Not just picking and choosing, as Jesus says the Samaritans do, because in their picking and choosing, they end up actually not worshiping God at all. And we must also be mindful of that, that in our picking and choosing of God, that we don't create a God for our own selves. That we don't create God in our own image and create God in our own liking and our own desires, that he fulfills the way that we think he should go about things. So we see Jesus telling her this, that you don't know who it's you're actually worshiping. And lastly, on that point is also being mindful that, yes, I know it can be difficult to take in some of these realities of who God is. But one thing me and my wife talk about on a constant basis, Jesus does not call us to evaluate things off difficulty, but rather on value. So we ask not the question, is this going to be hard, God, to accept this? Or is this going to be hard to obey you in this way? But we ask the question, is it worth it? And even greater is, are you worth it, Lord? That is a question that we must use to evaluate how we choose what we believe and do not believe. Lord, are you worth it in what we do? So let that be our heart as we worship him, seeing that, yes, he is worth it. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our acceptance of all that he is and not just segments and parts of who he is. So we move now to the second phrase that Jesus used, where he says, salvation is from the Jews. And so there's two aspects I want to talk about this. The first one is lineage of the Jewish people. And the second one is the actual Messiah. So we're going to look at Romans 9, verses 4 through 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them really quickly. So Romans 9, starting in verse 4, says this. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so we see in a lineage way that the Jews were given so much. They were given the revelation of God. They were given the worship. They were given the covenants. They were given all these things. And the Messiah was to come from them. And so in that way, salvation is from the Jews because that is the chosen people that God chose to use to reveal his plan of salvation, to reveal his character, reveal what he was going to do. And then the second way is in Luke 2, 25-32, and you can turn to that one. So in this passage, we're going to look at how Jesus himself is regarded as the salvation. So in Luke 2, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simon, or Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people, Israel. He sees Jesus and knows that Jesus is the salvation. Also for the Gentiles. And what a beautiful thing as we see that the Lord will save us. That the Lord is the Savior that has been proclaimed. The Lord that is the Savior that they have been looking for. This very Messiah that she is going to reference a little bit later is the one that they have been looking for. Let us embrace that. That there is salvation in no other. There is salvation in nothing else that this off, this world can give unto us or offer to us. There is only salvation in Christ and Christ alone. And what a beautiful thing as we see as this man gets ready to die and he gets to see this, how God is so just kind and gentle to him to be able to allow him to see such a beautiful thing. It's the Lord being gracious to him to see the salvation come before him. So let's continue now into verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that phrase spirit and truth, I know we've probably all heard it plenty of times and heard plenty of times in Bible studies and attribute to worship. But what does that mean? What does spirit mean? What does truth mean? So the two aspects of spirit I want us to look at is location and heart or intent. So the first thing about us worshiping in spirits that we talked about, as Jesus made reference to already, of there is no place that we, we must go to worship God, but we can worship him not bound by location. And the second aspect of the heart or the intent, and a lot of it to help to understand what does that mean, the spirit of something, is that Paul talks about this very often when he talks about the spirit of the law, Versus the letter of the law. And so there is a rigid just workspace in the sense of I stick to the letter. I do. I adhere. I check off every box. I do in a particular way versus the intent, the heart of the matter of being a matter of worship unto God. So when we worship in spirit is not bound by location and it is a heart that is unto God. A heart that loves God, a heart that genuinely believes what we are talking about. And the second aspect that he talks about is truth. A truth does matter. A truth is not something we can be flipping about. As we talked about that, we can't just pick and choose which aspects of God that we want or what aspects of God that we like. A truth does matter. And so right content does matter. And so there's two aspects of the same worship, not two different worships. It's of spirit and in truth. And many of us have gone through the dangers of emphasizing one above the other. A lot of us will lean onto one side of saying, why, it's all about the heart. It's all about the intent. It's all about how I feel. It's all about the emotion of the experience of worshiping God. Or there's others who sway on the complete other side of saying, it's, as long as it's truth, it does not matter how you feel about it. As long as you know what you're talking about, that is all that matters. So, so often we're put into these false dilemmas of choose this or choose that. Some of those come in, it's either the word or prayer. We either overemphasize reading scripture above prayer or prayer over scripture, but God doesn't allow us to do. He says both. Another one is experience versus knowledge. So some of us will say, well, this is how I feel the Lord is leading me. And this is what is most important is how I feel about this thing. And so because of my experience, this is what I must do. Or some will others say, it's only about what I know. I don't care about how it feels. I don't care about how you feel about it. It's only about the knowledge aspect. 
Another one is speaking versus living for God. So a lot of times you hear the emphasis of preach the gospel, preach the gospel. That's all we do is we only speak about it. And then though your character may be out of line, it doesn't matter. It's only if you proclaim the right thing. So and the other one is doesn't matter if you say not a word for Jesus as long as they know you live for him. If you demonstrate the character. But a lot of times we cannot get caught in these false dilemmas. That God calls us to both in these things. That yes, we proclaim his word. And yes, we live for him. Because if we live for him and we do not speak for him, they will just worship us. If we speak for him and we don't live for him, then they will condemn us. They will say, why would I believe what you're saying? If I see you speaking and not living it out. And so as we look at what spirit and truth, that we have the right heart in worship, and we know the truth of who we're worshiping, especially when we're singing songs and looking at the words on the screen, that as we're looking at them and we're contemplating, what is this saying? That we sing, Lord, I love you. Let that be a genuine heart attitude also. Let your heart genuinely love the Lord. And as we sing, Lord, you are sovereign and you are worthy of praise. Let us praise him with our heart. As we praise him and worship him for how merciful he is, how just he is, how good he is. That our heart align with that reality. That our heart know that. That as he is sovereign, I don't have to worry. As he is merciful, then therefore he will forgive me of my sins. That he is gentle means he is going to be alongside me, though I may falter and make mistakes. Let our heart and our mind worship God together. Our whole being worship the Lord. So then as he continues on, he says, the Father is seeking such people. Why is God seeking? What does that look like? And I want us to just look at this very passage to be our example. We see the Father seeking such worshipers by Jesus going unto this woman who was an adulteress, who's doing all kinds of things a lot. By the Father, as Jesus says in John 4, 34, his food is to do the will of his Father. So we see God, the Father, using Christ to seek out worshipers. And Jesus then tells, as we'll talk about later on by Tim, that Jesus then sends us out to do the same thing. That we go out to, because the harvest is ripe. That we go out and proclaim the word. That more may come unto the Lord and worship him. So we see in the Father seeking, he sends his son. And then the Son sends us out by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit to seek those, to proclaim his word to whoever may come across our path, no matter what state they're in, because I, met, I can imagine plenty of Jews would have said, I would never talk to a woman like this. But Jesus sought her out, proclaimed the word to her. And as we'll see, she does come and worship unto the Lord. So the last phrase in here also wanted to talk about is where it says God is spirit. And though we cannot grasp completely the reality of God's being and what all of this is, but just some general things just to help to understand what does this mean. The first one is location. God is not bound by any location. And the second thing, like with spiritual natures and spiritual things that it's not perceived by our senses. We don't touch God. We don't see God. We don't feel for him, but we know he is there because he has communicated with us through his word and by his spirit that we know he is there. And so God is not perceived by our senses. 
And this is also why one of the commandments is to not make images of God, because there is no way for us to show who he is physically. And so because of that, he condemns anyone who makes any image of him because we cannot show who he is. So as we continue on, verse 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's something really interesting as I started to go through this passage and that word must. It eliminates all of their options. And to see the strength of what must looks like, I want to go to a couple different um, situations where John uses this very word of must in something that we all would understand as there is no other option. So the first one is John 3, 7. The second one is 3, 14. And then we're going to come back to where we're at right now. So in John 3, 7, Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So all of us understand and completely know that we must be born again to see the Lord. We must be born again. So that's a reality that we are able to all grasp. The second one is in 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So a second thing that Jesus must be lifted up. Both physically and spiritually, he must be lifted up. That he was going to die on a cross. That must happen for our salvation. And then now we see we must worship the Father like this. And so if you were paying attention, there was something Trinitarian in that. That there is a must be born by the Spirit. We must believe in this, in this Jesus who died. And this is the way that we must worship the Father. And so we see these definites of there is a must to how we are to worship. And like I said, and just want to reiterate again, is that we cannot pick and choose. We cannot choose the way that we worship God because he says this is the way that it must happen. And we must be obedient unto what he says is the way to worship him. And so the answer number three of how. So we must worship God with both our minds and our hearts, not in either or. So that is how with our minds and our hearts we worship him. So let's continue on to the end of this passage. Verses 25 through 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we're not going to turn there, but it's in Deuteronomy 18.15. You can write it down for later, but... As I was talking about them only accepting the first five books, and so this would have been a common understanding of her of Deuteronomy 18.15, which Moses talks about another prophet to come, which she called Jesus, and she knows that the Messiah is coming. She's speaking these things and talking about who Jesus, not Jesus himself, sorry, but talking about the Messiah who is to come. And Jesus answers her with, I am that one that you are looking for. I am that one that, is, that you are looking for to come and to tell you of all these things. And as I, the fifth, fourth question that I asked from the beginning is, who is the God that we worship? Jesus answers to us that he is the Messiah. He is the coming Savior. And this is important for us to know who Jesus is because 
We do not want to be like the Samaritans who worship a God that we do not know. And also, in our time, if you talk to people, a lot of people will say that they are Christian. But if you ask them, what do they believe about Jesus? That is normally the tipping point. That is normally the point where they will be deviant, that they will deviate from who Christ really is. So as we answer that question is, who is the God we worship? I just want to point out a couple things about who this Jesus is that we do worship. So the very first one, that he was born of a virgin. That is something that we cannot let go, we cannot separate. That Jesus was born of a virgin. Second is that he lived a sinless and perfect life. That there was no error, there was no falsehood, and there was no lies in him. The third is that he died on a cross for the sins of his people. Fourth is that he rose on the third day to proclaim his victory over sin and death. As he ascended to the Father, where he sits now until he comes back. And lastly, one day, he will bring his people into the new heavens and the new earth. And that is the God that we worship. That is the God that we know. That is the only true God. And anything that tries to bring us away from that reality, that tries to tell us, no, Jesus didn't die. It was just a spiritual thing. Or anything that says, no, he really wasn't born of a virgin, that he was actually, he did sin or he erred. That is not our Jesus. That is not our Lord. That is not our Messiah. That is not our Savior. And so as we worship God, we must know who he is. We must know why we do it. We must know how. And we must know where. I said something a lot before when I said about the hour coming. And I want to end off in this passage in Revelations. And so this week, I had a vacation, and so I was taking some time, and me and Tim were helping to revamp the website. And as I was going through it, I had to read through every single thing to go back and to find any of those any errors or anything like that. And it was a beautiful experience for me because as I got to go back, I was just reading through on what the gospel was on the website, and I encourage you to look at it. And as I was going through this, I got to the part where I was talking about what is to come for us and just talking about all the amazing things. And in my heart at that moment, I was like, can this be real? There's a, it dawned to me like this overwhelming sense of like, this feels so good that it can't be true. And as I was reading it, I was just amazed at the reality of what the Lord has told us he is coming to do. That he has already done beautiful things and even much more what he's coming to do. And so what I want us to do is read through Revelations 21, starting in verse 22 and going through 22, 5 as we end off and just thinking about this Lord that we worship, thinking of the reality that he is telling us is to come for us, this beautiful paradise that is with him. And so I pray that your heart may worship God as you read what he has in store for his people. So Revelations 21, verses 22, and then going through chapter 22, verse 5. So I encourage you to go back and read through the whole entire chapter 21. It's some beautiful things about what heaven is going to be like and the new Jerusalem is going to be like. 
but it's starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is the God that we worship, and we look forward and hope that he is coming back to bring us into that reality. And so before I pray, I just encourage you, as we sing this last song, to contemplate and just think about the God who is to come back. Our Lord Jesus is coming back and bringing us to that rally. May we worship him and praise him for such great things he has revealed to us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for how magnificent you are. Thank you for passages like that, Lord, that just talk about the beauty of what you're bringing us into, Lord. And neither sin, nor death, nor corruption, nothing may hinder us from you. That our worship may be without sin, Lord, something that we do not understand at this moment, Lord. And so we praise you that you have revealed that to us. Lord, I ask for all of our hearts that we may worship you. May we praise you. May we ascribe ultimate value to you, that you are all in all, that you are above every other thing that this world would try to take us away from you from, Lord. So, Lord, we just worship you and we praise you, Lord. Thank you for how gracious you have been. Amen.